Welcome to the 350th episode of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lauren Halsey. Two Los Angeles museums are showing her work. The Hammer Museum has included Halsey's The Crenshaw District Hieroglyph Project, Prototype Architecture, in its Made in LA 2018 biennial. Across town, MOCA is exhibiting Halsey's We Still Here There, a room-sized installation at its Grand Avenue location. Made in LA was curated by Anne Elgood and Aaron Cristoval and is on view through September 2nd. The Halsey installation at MOCA was curated by Lanka Tattersall with assistance from Carlin Olvido. It's up through September 3rd. Halsey is a Los Angeles and Atlanta-based artist whose work engages specific communities with architecture and sculpture that mines recent American history, Afrofuturism, the history of black representation, and plenty more. She's been in group exhibitions at galleries in California, New York, and Europe, and has had residencies at LA's Main Museum and at New York's Recess Art and Studio Museum. On the second segment, Sadie Barnett joins me to discuss her Dear 1968, which is on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. But first, Lauren Halsey, after a break. Actress Lola Kirk, star of the series Mozart in the Jungle in films Mistress America and Gone Girl, also leads an indie band. Hear her smoky vocals and beautifully plaintive songs on Saturday, July 28th at 6 p.m. as part of the Off the 405, an annual summer concert series that brings today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Sculpture Garden at the Museum of Modern Art is the place to be this summer. There's live music from local bands on Thursday evenings, treats from the garden bar like craft beer, wine, and ice cream, and a special exhibition of 23 sculptures chosen by artist Peter Fishley, including Snowman, an actual snowman encased in a glass door freezer, by Fishley and his longtime collaborator David Weiss. Get more info at moma.org and plan your visit today. This summer, visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York to see Giacometti, called Majestic by the New Yorker. Featuring nearly 200 sculptures, paintings, and drawings, the exhibition takes a close look at the art-making process of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti, known for his distinctive sculptures of the human form. Experience the show through September 12th, including on Tuesday nights when the museum is open until 9 p.m. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash Giacometti. And we're back. Lauren Halsey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. You have talked a good bit in in the interviews you've done about how important your family's history is to your work, to where you make your work, to, to what you make your work from and why. So let's start there. Your family on both sides came to Los Angeles during the Great Migration. From where did they come and where in L.A. did they settle? My mother's family, for sure, came from Louisiana straight to LA, my grandmother in particular. And then my father's side, from what I know, went Louisiana up north to Minnesota. I think my grandfather was in Chicago and then straight to LA, both landed in downtown South Central. And I've been there ever since. And the same homes, same neighborhoods, yeah. So you've also talked about how being involved in communities in Los Angeles is important to you and that your family has been as long as it's been here. 
What are some of the ways your family has been involved in communities here and why has that been a jumping off point for you? Always, my grandmother literally, uh, you know, literally building, being a black woman builder, teenage builder at the time, church in downtown South Central next to Watts, huge, uh, being a, like a missionary for the church in ways that like, you know, aren't problematic, I think. My other grandmother being an educator, my cousin starting a school, a, a black private school in Westchester, and, and you know, it's still there. My father and all of his sort of activist work with neighborhood unity and nonviolence, those efforts, my cousin and his huge fight against, you know, the Crenshaw redevelopment plan and gentrification all over South I mean, I can go on and on, you know. So I don't know. It just feels like it's in my bones. It doesn't even feel like a, a sort of sheen or something. It just feels very natural. So want to take sort of a, some sort of action in whatever you do. So how did you come to realize that you could marry that idea and that personal and family history with art making? I think in the process and I think in the context in which like the, the making was happening. So I was talking about it hypothetically, like in school, you know, because school isn't, you know, at home. And it was uh, in New Haven and in Valencia. Keller's and yeah. Yeah. And so I just was sort of, you know, projecting community or neighborhood people, specific figures into the work via these cutouts, almost like manifesting their presence or like manifesting their energy that I was trying to summon through these, you know, small images of them. And then when I got back to L.A., it just felt natural to pull these people in. And so I guess that happened because I was making my work there, you know, because I actually, you know, invited people and paid people to stay. And so now it's just been this sort of very smooth effort that I don't even really have to think about. But the moment where they both were married was this day that I was building a float. I had spent like a month building it sort of by myself. And my grandma was cutting things out with me once I like got to like the final moment or whatever production. And they dropped the float off in front of my mother's house. And one of my very best friends came outside and was like, whoa, do you need help? And then he like jumped on like this 50 foot flatbed with me and my grandmother. A few minutes later, it turned out, you know, the kids riding by, hopping off their bikes to help. And then it turned into my little cousins and it turned to cousins my age. Then it turned to my aunt up the street and her friends. And then it became this social moment. And so when that happened, it was like, oh, I've, I've done it. The float you're talking about is, I think, a float you made for the 2016 Martin Luther King Day Parade. You have described it as your, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, as your first mature artwork. I said that? Yeah, you said it was kind of your first, I think your phrase was your first adult artwork or something. <laughs> I guess I said that. But what I meant by that is that there was the presence of like my neighborhood and, you know, everyone that I care about. And it's, you know, the people that helped, who helped me make the float, um, who put all of their energy into its making and, you know, the efforts to get it up and running, then got to ride it. And had like their um, ownership over this thing as well. And so I guess in that way, it was my first like mature 
adult artwork. I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't suggesting community. It was just that. How did, how did that piece happen? And did you intend for it to be what it ended up in terms of that kind of breadth of community engagement, involvement, hands-on-ness? No. And that's what made it so magical and the most special at the time was that I started building it and I was building it alone. It was very lonely, as was all my projects at the time, you know, building like these full-on maximalist, huge in scale iterations of, um, you know, community and community love and community pride and doing it alone. There was something very emo about that. What happened with the floats construction, you know, in the, the last three days just was this sort of love affair after love affair with like my neighborhood making an effort to do something that had nothing to do with me. We've all been to the Martin Luther King Day Parade. We've all not seen a lot of floats. And I thought it was a really beautiful moment that, you know, people who might not term themselves as sculptors or painters or whatever wore these hats to get the job done. So it wasn't something that I planned. It happened like very naturally. And then it just sort of kept happening through even like the deinstall of the float. So I thought it was going to be this moment where I built a float and it would be me by myself. And then I would have my friends write it. I had no idea that my friends and family would help me assemble and construct it and aestheticize it. Where is it now? (laughs) In my mom's backyard, and some of it's in my grandma's backyard, yeah. <laughs> oh, conservators are going to have a field day with, uh, with that. So in that, so we'll have on, on manpodcast.com a really great three, three-and-a-half-minute video that Papillion Art made of the float and the parade. I think that's the most substantial documentation that exists of the work. So you, you, you mentioned visual cacophony and kind of the vernacular exuberance of neighborhoods that, that you loved. In the handout for your Mocha installation, which we'll talk about in a minute, you reproduce a, a 2006 photo collage you made, and it's dense, and it's kind of composition resisting, but not entirely, and it's colorful, and it's loud, and it feels like a really key early piece, which I, I think is probably why Mocha reproduced it over two full pages, which is great. Where did that piece come from? What were the sources that informed your approach to to putting that together in, in Photoshop? Yeah, so I started off in community college in a Photoshop class while I was taking architecture and printmaking. El Camino College? I did that for about, I think, three terms. And in that class, I, you know, the goal was to master Photoshop so that I can then, you know, build these ideal maximalist maps of my neighborhood. And so the process for that was collecting images via like National Geographic, my uh, digital camera at the time borrowed from the class, my, you know, cousins and friends, cameras, magazines, newspaper clippings, actual ephemera I was collecting, actual architecture I was archiving and putting it all in this like gumbo pot to, you know, remap the neighborhood through my lens of Afrofuturism, of funk, of P-funk, of G-funk and neighborhood pride. And so I 
made, you know, a million of them, like literally like over 300 of these, uh, these maps. And so at the time, I didn't know, but they were these great exercises in just composition and color too. I never printed them out, but I knew after the last one that I had accumulated so many maps and blueprints and proposals for like, you know, certain elevations of, you know, the city block that I would want to see that it was time to build the maquette. And so when I got to grad school, I started to build the maquettes that were still, you know, to scale, to human scale, but not the, the, the radical scale that I was proposing in the blueprints. And when that happened, and that's still happening, I still am working at, at you know, maquette scale, experimental maquette scale. But uh, when that happened, I knew that that was a breakthrough in sculpture and that um, I would forever want to build these these blueprints that I've been working from ever since. So the 2006 digital photo collage, Mystical Mating Ground, somewhere out here, Clean Planet Splurge Riff, is kind of a a blueprint? Yeah, absolutely a blueprint. And so I was thinking about when I was making these and I got to architecture school at CCA, I was thinking a lot about Super Studio and Peter Cook and, you know, the archigrams and how they beautifully and poetically merge nature with like building, building with people. And I wanted to do that same sort of architecture that was about sensory, that was about fun, that was about celebration, that was about who was already there. When I say they're blueprints, I mean they're blueprints in the affect of the composition, not so much like, you know, this is it and I'm going to build it just like this. So this is interesting and cool for me because a lot of the stuff in the 2006 digital collage survive, end up in the, the 2018, 12 years later, Mocha installation. We'll have lots of pictures of the Mocha installation on manpodcast.com, but there are, you know, little two inch kind of action figures throughout the Mocha installation. One of the figures, I think it's in the installation at least twice is an astronaut, you know, like a little astronaut figure that, that, that the kids would play with. And in this 2006 photo collage reproduced in Mocha's handout is at the kind of upper left is indeed an astronaut with a man's face superimposed over it. And there are a couple other examples of things that are in this photo collage that then 12 years later end up in the Mocha installation. So I, let's talk about a couple of them. Astronauts. Why astronauts? Well, they're astronauts. That's sampled from the Parliament Funkadelic Cosmology and just thinking about black flight and the Afronaut body being a vessel into these, you know, black heaven utopias that I'm so inspired by. So when you have Cat Williams' heads on the Afronaut, it doesn't mean that he's landing in the Kingdom Splurge or he's landing at Mocha. He's passing through me into P-Funk, into Motor Booty Affair, into Trump Impulation, into Sun Ra, you know, into all these other fantasy scapes. So that's just like a moment of pause for Cat William, the Afronaut. Lots of Egypt references, and you just mentioned Sun Ra. Tell us about how you got there. Again, inheriting it. My father, he's uh, deeply inspired by his studies of ancient Egypt dynasties, certain Pharaonic dynasties, and makers, builders. 
G-Funk, which was, you know, for those that don't know, Death Row's mega remix of Parliament Funkadelic. Parliament Funkadelic's adaption of ancient Egypt and their cosmologies, both underwater and on land and in outer space. Once I got to Harlem for the Studio Museum and a Harlem residency, which is like amazingly like on 125th Street, like on the block, the nucleus where all this stuff is happening, uh, meeting a lot of ideological groups that, you know, where ancient Egypt functions as uh, the genius that they sort of pull from. And so up until that point, moving to Harlem, I was obsessed with this myth-making um, and what compelled this myth-making about uh, ancient Egypt as it relates to blackness and myths around that. And I met um, a few guys who were actual uh, pyramid builders, two-scale pyramid builders, yeah, um, who were doing it in the 90s and this and that. And um, in that moment, the obsession, the obsession sort of shifted from you know, music, uh, film, uh, myth-making to actual architecture and building projects. And so uh, that's when I started thinking about the function of the hieroglyph as record-making. So we will get to hieroglyphs, which are in the hammer piece, the piece in Made in LA 2018. But but the the pyramids, as you mentioned, lots of references to Egypt are in the uh, Mocha installation too. Throughout this 2006 photo collage, there are little things that that, that pop up in in the Mocha show. You one of them that kind of moves from one place to another is there is a representation of the the famous King Tut mask in the photo collage with oversized lips digitally pasted on top of it. I think that mask is probably in in the Mocha installation too, but those lips, those oversized lips, you use in a different way. You superimpose over Cupid or Cupids um, in in the new installation. How and why does kind of migrating those lips from kind of an Egyptian art history to a European art history come to be? In what way European? What do you mean? Well, you know, the tradition of Cupids in Baroque and... Oh, yeah. So that just goes back to... So when I think about the figures that I collect, I don't think about that at all. The art, the art history? No. These are fi- not those figures. The history that I think about are how I've happened upon them and how my grandma happened upon them. And it's a very different history. And so what's fascinating to me is that they're all manufactured out of China and somehow they end up in liquor stores, 99 cent stores, mini markets in the neighborhood. And not so much anymore, but there was a time when they were just like, you know, all over the place and you could just buy them and collect them. Now they're much more rare. But um, I grew up with these figurines curated very particularly in my grandmother's home, in my best friend's mom's home, just like in people's homes, down to the point where they would hire artists to build sets to exhibit their figurines. And they would rearrange them. They would give them light. They would give them plants, whatever. And they uh, were these surrogate figures for whatever they were trying to manifest or reflect via the figurine. And so uh, when I put the lips on the nemesis, that's just to a way to employ 
that it's African-American, that it's woman, that it's female, that it has attitude, that it's ours. And when I was doing that, it was because for the Mocha show, it was because I was seeing on the, the news that there was some debate over if Nefertiti was black or not. It was on Channel 4 or something. And it was uh, this really quick segment that I didn't take serious, but it was out there. So I guess it was serious that debated her heritage, her skin tone, all this and that. And so I, in that moment, took the, the lips and I put them. There's, so there's two sets of lips in the mocha show. There's ones at the, the top of Nefertiti's bust next to her pyramids. And then uh, I put the lips on the black angels who functioned as her guardian with those protective oils and sprays so that they would be in conversation. The, the labels on those oil and spray, oils and sprays will have an image of, of this too on manpodcast.com are, I mean, you have a sense of humor. <laughs> Thanks. What, yeah. what, are, what are the labels, um, you know, defining what is within the, the, uh, the little bottle is Oprah's money. Yeah. My friend Adonis made that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed over time. I'm obsessed with titles. And what people choose to call things, whether it's a business, whether it's a scent or, or, you know, incense oil. And so I just love just sort of riffing to myself what, you know, someone could be wanting to summon by burning like something like that or having it in their home. And a few, it's not out there, but this is a project that I did for myself a few years ago I interviewed incense makers and oil makers that I got to know about certain scents they were making, what they were trying to conjure when they did a citrus Obama versus like a smoky scented Obama, you know, things like that. And so this isn't out there either, but I have like, I have a huge, huge, huge collection of, I mean, bouquets of incense and gallons of, of oils that just are these, you know, these beautiful myths and poems and so I love that they function as, you know, like Sun Ra would say, like a living myth that people use to protect, protect themselves or to summon something or to attract something. But I also I love the audacity of the names, too. Yeah. And the, and, and the way they exist within the, the Mocha installation is that's probably my favorite part of the installation. It's smart. It's funny. It's full of layered cultural and historical and art historical references artists particularly young artists are so often rare to let a little bit of humor in and it and it does and it was really it was really great so you've mentioned a couple times now how the work is often built particularly the mocha built uh, mocha piece from vernacular stuff that your family has that you've collected from places in in south central la be they businesses or just stuff you found and in an interview you did with Talia Mancini in Outre Mag magazine, you said that you wanted the work to be, quote, an aesthetic sociopolitical record of contemporary South Central. And I love that phrase. I wish I had thought of that phrase. So before I ask you a little more about that, could you define how you think of what you mean by aesthetic sociopolitical record? Well, I think so much information and content, you know, whether it's myth, fantasy, whether it's activists, whether it's beauty, 
fun, all of this exists in forms that have always existed in South Central for as long as I've been alive, at least. And as long as my father has been alive, considering like the archive of his that I pull from. And so rather than jot things down or, or and nothing's wrong, I'm not saying that there's a hierarchy of one or the other, but rather uh, than record things in the other in, in one way or another, I intentionally care about archiving these records via our aesthetics and what we make, uh, what we cook. I mean, there's a cookbook that I inherited from my neighbor who actually like just passed like a month or so ago. And she's been my neighbor since I've been seven. And in it, she's using the language of language of like businesses, the language of incense to describe like food. I love that. And I think it's very complicated and poetic. I think that there's a way to also think about archiving or, you know, just gathering content via language, via, you know, aesthetic objects, aesthetically. And that's what I prefer. So in my other life, I spend a lot of research time in the Civil War era, and I see how Americans and, and even or especially American art historians are ex- are slow to understand that sociopolitics can be expressed via aesthetics. It's not something that historians have been really quick to. What got you there? I mean, was there were, were there were ideas or instructors in, in art school that the kind of led you to that idea? No, I was always gathering things. My uh, parents, now looking back, gave me a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom. And my rooms, or my room, my bedroom, was always this like evolving installation of things I was collecting that, you know, I would construct or curate or whatever. Uh, with my friends who now are the same people who helped me do the bigger things that are up right now. And so uh, the energy and action was already happening. And then my father, he's a huge collector of things. And my mother collects her own things. And my grand, so I think I just, it's just in my bones. So I, you know, I don't know. But so when I got into making these collages in like 2006, first thing I was doing was going to my collection of like South Central signs that I was already collecting because they were beautiful to me. I was going to my figurines that I was collecting because they were beautiful to me. I love that my grandmother collected them and my best friend Emmanuel's mom collected them. I wanted to collect them. A lot of the things I was collecting at the time when I first started making the collages was a riff off of what people around me were uh, collecting and what I grew up around. So the ballerinas, are you intentionally taking on the legacy of ballerinas in 19th century French painting by including a a pointed, alone by itself, black ballerina figurine, you know, two inches, three inches, whatever it is tall? Is that, are are you being intentional with that? (laughs) No, I wasn't. I collect those and I I have a million of those figurines, different types of them. I love them as these, you know, figures that are about celebration, that are about dance, that are about fun, but that are also like manifesting with their their hands and their arms, these new visions for space. The American flags 
um, at the beginning and end, or end and beginning, depending on, I guess, how you enter the piece, of, of the MoCA installation. Intentional, art historical, and, and Los Angeles reference there? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, those I actually first came across when I was at the Studio Museum. And so uh, when I saw the David Hammond's flags to scale that that are there at like the corridor at the threshold in which you enter the museum and you see it in its elevation, I love that as a way to set the tone on, on for what's about to contextualize everything behind that flag when you walk in the doors. I picked those up in L.A. from my friend Adonis and I loved that it was this this national, well, from my experience, a national national symbol of blackness that I first encountered in Harlem and now in South Central. And I wanted to use it in the same function that the Studio Museum did to contextualize everything in that space around that flag that Damon ha- David Hammonds created. Yeah, it works. It really works. It's a really neat moment on entry and exit that just kind of tips a hat and grounds the piece and kind of in, 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 in meaningful ways re, I don't know what the right word is, reorients an institution that has had some issues in the last year or two. Right. And that was very important too, to energize the space with everything that the flag represents. So when we, or at least I think of artists who collect and use vernacular material from South Central Los Angeles, there are three artists I, I, think of right away. I'm sure everybody else does too. Simon Rodia, Betty Saar, and Mark Bradford. Have any of them been important or interesting to you? Yeah, all of them, plus a a lot of other ones too. Um, But of those three, I grew up and uh, still am around the corner or up the street from the Watts Towers, like a couple minutes away. And so seeing that scale as a little girl, my aunt Josie, she has friends that are artists and stuff. She and who've done that residency program at the Watts Towers Art Center. And so as a little girl, as a preteen, as a teenager, seeing that scale while I was thinking about like neighborhood and building my own spaces because my parents were allowing me to build my own bedroom over and over and over again, I was deeply inspired. And I was inspired by uh, the tile and uh, the very humble materials that Simon was using and reading over and over and over again, like the language around it, you know, like they have it on a plaque, how he just did it. He just started building and building and building and he built it. That was inspiring. Betty Saar, I always say this, like as a kid or a little girl going on field trips to like museums in LA, because that's just like what you do. And um, going to CAM and going to LACMA in particular, always seeing Betty Saar um, and knowing I would see Betty Saar was super beautiful and magical for me. And then finally getting to meet like the mythic Betty Saar. That was in 2014 when I was at Skalhegan. She was like a visiting artist. So what was that like? How did, what did you say? What did she say? We talked about family. And the first thing she she said was, tell me about your family. And I told her about my family. We didn't even talk about art. We talked about family, family histories, just family narratives, my grandma. We talked about L.A., but mostly family. 
and intimacy of family. Uh, Mark Bradford, I was first presented him, or he was first presented to me when uh, I was in at El Camino and uh, it was digital art class. And, you know, we had to take photos of, you know, something in the environment that we were interested in. And I took like a million photos of the classic LA merchant posters, the street signs. And by that time I had a collection of like at least 50 or 60 of them. And uh, the teacher was like, do you know Mark Bradford? He's from where you're from and he's employing the same material, you know, that I sort of uh, become, became obsessed with his um, abstract maps of neighborhood. And I thought I was doing the same thing in a figurative way with my blueprints. And he became someone who, you know, became a mythic figure for me when I was in community college. And it was like, oh, he went to CalArts? I'll apply to CalArts, you know. So let's let's switch over to The Hammer. The work at Made in L.A. is called The Crenshaw District Hieroglyph Project, Prototype Architecture. Before we talk about the piece, tell me about those last two words. Why is it a prototype for what is it a prototype? It's a prototype for um, an upcoming permanent iteration of the prototype architecture. So... Again, that's experimental maquette of what's to come next year. The piece at the hammer is, an ex- yeah. is, is, is a is a human sized experimental maquette. You can and and I did walk through it, for example, and walk around it. So you mentioned how the Watts Towers were interesting and important to you in terms of their size and their scale and their ambition. Is the way they've been important to you? that it's helped you think through how sculpture can be architecture-sized? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that that was, you know, they were the first artworks that I'd seen over and over and over and over before I went to, like, you know, a museum on a field trip. Yeah, they definitely sort of set the tone forever for what scale can, you know, be in a public sculpture sort of way. I think that when we think of America's greatest public sculptures, scale is often the last thing we think of. You know, say, think of think of Eero Saarinen's Gateway Arch in St. Louis or, or the Watts Towers. But I think artists have definitely noticed scale. And, and I'm, it's neat to hear artists talk about that. I mean, Robert Smithson, for example, noticed the scale of the Gateway Arch when, when he was emerging as somebody who wanted to work at, at, at Earth scale. So the, uh, the Crenshaw District Hieroglyph Project includes um, not just the architectural space we've been talking about, but, you know, to use a bunch of different words for the same thing, carving, pictographs, kind of contemporary hieroglyphic references. And before we talk about some of those specific things that are in the hammer piece, that are represented in the hammer piece, could you talk us through why kind of reaching back to hieroglyphs and updating them was of interest? Yeah, I was going to the Met. So when I was like falling in love with like some of those ideological groups that were, you know, actually building tangible structures and objects in all scale to exist, to coexist with the myth, I was also going to the Met a lot to see the Temple of Dinder, to spend time just with the hieroglyphics. And I don't, I mean, I'm obsessed with archiving and documenting already. And I thought the hieroglyph 
And uh, it was an appropriate form to think about documenting via drawing or carving and making these engravings. And it also functioning as like a structural wall where I can then think about architecture at the same time as I'm thinking about drawing and carving. And I also found it interesting that, you know, these scribes were carving compositions around, you know, the pharaoh's dynasty, present, past, present, future. And I thought how cool it would be if I could get the neighborhood to, you know, carve our own narratives into a surface. So it's, it functions as, you know, a community, a community record of engravings of hieroglyphs and voices and stories, you know. We were talking about the scale, the physical scale of the Watts Towers and how that interests you in terms of bringing large physical scale to sculpture, architectural level physical scale to sculpture. Were you interested in the way the scale of time has worked on on hieroglyphs as a form of visual and textual communication and that they've made it? They've lasted for 2,000 or 3,000 or 10,000 or whatever it is, years. Was that yeah, important or interesting? absolutely. Um, and that was so fascinating to me that every time I would go to the Met and to the Egyptian wing, it was always packed. And that, you know, you can go right now and sign up for, you know, some sort of tourist group to, and there's like, you know, a million of them to go experience the the pyramids. And as a neighborhood or people are being moved and deleted, you know, from landscapes that they've been in in LA for decades now, centuries, I thought the hieroglyph would be an appropriate way to sustain and preserve our stories and who we are in the same way that the Egyptians did of the Pharaoh. Is there a passage or group of passages on the interior of that piece that you think is a particularly good example of that? I mean, there, you have groupings of heads, you have, um, I mean, there are lots of, you know, there's lots of content. God, that's a bad word. But is there a, a, a particular favorite grouping of yours within within the work that that accomplishes or that you hope accomplishes that that reaching beyond and existing for a very long time? Well, all of it, but maybe the the north interior and exterior wall. There's this this composition that pays tribute to um, this woman, this genius, brilliant woman who's still alive named Dolores Brown who, with 11 other black women, were in the, um, the coalition, the Black Women Coalition of Neighborhood Developers. And in the 90s, and present day, she's still doing this work, they created a lot of opportunities for the neighborhood to live in the neighborhood and to stay in the neighborhood through ways of thinking about alternative community building. And one project of hers that I'm super inspired by is her market, what is it, Market Creek Plaza project in uh, San Diego, where she employs new methods of alternative community building uh, via community land trust to build this center that employs and financially affirms everyone in the neighborhood who helped to build it. So I see that as, an, and so in front of uh, Dolores Brown, there are these stairs and um, all the figures, everyone's, the majority of people's gaze 
and that composition are towards her. And uh, that being the sort of leadership that we need to move forward in a very complicated and new LA. We'll have uh, images of that on, on manpodcast.com. Another one of the references on the interior of the structure that I wanted to bring up was uh, the lists of names that line, for example, I don't know, I think maybe it's on the east side, list of names that, that line the doorways. What are some of those names? What do they represent? Who do they represent? And why are they, why, why did you choose to include them? They line both doorways and uh, they're names of people who pass from violence, police violence and gang violence. Some are people that I know or I've known. Some are, you know, the people that I don't know who are names that we all know. And so I wanted, you know, this prototype architecture, which I also think of as a pavilion to function as, you know, um, this aspirational structure with aspirational messaging towards future. And now I wanted it to function as like fun and nostalgia and celebration, but I also wanted it to function as memorial too, which was also a function of the hieroglyphs. And so with that and with the women who are to the right and left of the names on both sides, and those are women who Lonnie Franklin Jr., the Grim Sleeper, murdered between the 70s and early 2000s. Let me just fill in for non-Angelinos. The Grim, the Grim Sleeper was a serial killer who um, operated in L.A. An, an arrest was made just in the last year or two, but his crimes, assuming it was a he, were, were separated by you know something like 16 or 18 years. And so because there was this fallow period in his, in his killing, he became known as the Grim Sleeper. Right. And so he lived on my street, which made it even more creepier and uh, immediate. And so with, with uh, the names and with these women's faces, I wanted to contextualize them in this black space that sees them and recognizes them. And a lot of the names also are names that like don't that don't really get remembered or re-remembered on their anniversary, their death anniversary nationally in the way that they should. So whether it's like a cousin or it's my best friend's brother or, or something like that, I wanted to include them and forever memorialize them in this prototype architecture, which I will do on the real thing. So just to make super clear, in the work, do you differentiate who is killed by gang violence and who is killed by police violence, or are all of those names stacked next to each other? Yeah, they're all, there's not an order to that. Which I think was important to point out. I mean, that seems like, you know, a really pointed insistence you're making there. Yeah, I see it all as like sloppy and messy and and horrible and disgusting, you know. So a couple times you've mentioned both in the title of the piece and as we've been talking that this is a prototype for an actual thing. What are the plans for it? Well, I'm working on that right now. So uh, it'll be in the proposal, there'll be four towers. And I think the, the hammer is 12 feet tall. It'll be at least 20 feet tall, four towers with open circulation. It won't be closed off in its corners in the way that the hammer is. In the middle, there will be a rock garden with waterfalls. 
the floor will be everything will be a composition the floor will be carved into the benches that you sit on will be carved into there'll be green space for like these moments of pause where you can sit and uh you know dream ponder rest think and there will also be programming that over time activates it so that it's not like it doesn't function as like this ruin or this set it would always be this live sculpture for as long as I can make that happen. And where will it be? So that's what I'm figuring out now, but it's going to be on the, the, the stroll of Crenshaw. But I'll know that in a couple months. You have talked about the work you were doing in the 2000 aughts before art school as super maximalist. And in that 2006 photo collage we were uh, talking about earlier, it's dense, it's vibrant, it's full of color and movement and cacophony and and there's a lot of that same boom in the mocha installation the hammer installation is more pared down it's almost but not entirely monochromatic and it's quieter it's visually quieter and i i'm curious about how you more or less at the same time made a piece that was so turned up and another that was so turned down and how you think through going between those two things. Yeah, I think what came before Mocha and was that as maximalist as it's gotten from, uh, for the practice. And, uh, when it came to Mocha, but also because of like the limitations of you know, museums and, and that, Thing. I sort of was in a space where I, I had to and I took advantage of creating like these focused vignettes. And so uh, my, maxim- my maximalism that I, you know, would like to employ in uh, installations like Mocha sort of had to become contained into like these pockets, which worked. And when I uh, was thinking about the hammer, I was thinking about the affect of maximalism, again, um, via composition. And so that, that for me, was a, a, a way to address not using everything in the kitchen sink as far as materials, as far as, like, surface texture. And so um, examples of that are in some of the compositions, for example, in the top right southern wall, the, the like the new pantheon of um, you know black figures with the Marcus Garvey and the Nefertiti and um, the Dr. King looking out at the Dolores Brown for me that was maximalism or the the wall of figures in the Exodus scene where there's all these haircuts and hairstyles and they're moving into the portals into the space and so uh, I guess the answer for that it's all one and the same for me. It's just that the the hammer is about, you know, these still lives or these documents without the texture, without the color, without the flair. And they're still as maximalist as the iteration of Mocha with the hair, with the with the color, with the cheetah carpet. It's all the same to me. It's also mass maximalist and it's a address of time you know marcus garvey and dr king loom above the pyramids right yeah exactly (laughs) 
Well, Lauren Halsey, best of luck on the Crenshaw District Hieroglyph Project. And thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad I figured out Skype. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view at the Pulitzer through August 11th, Mona Hatoum, Terra Inferma, is the artist's first major solo exhibition in the United States in 20 years and comprises more than 30 sculptures and installations. Merging the languages of minimalism and surrealism filtered through a feminist lens, Hatoum subverts the familiar to offer nuanced perspectives on universal human questions. The exhibition has been organized by the Menil Collection Houston and is on view at the Pulitzer in St. Louis through August 11, 2018. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Sadie Barnett. Her Dear 1968 is on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego through September 3rd. The installation is the result of Barnett's research into her family history, specifically her father's participation in the Black Panther Party and the FBI's surveillance of him. Barnett is an Oakland-based artist whose work often explores urbanity, architecture, resistance, and survival. Dear 1968 was previously exhibited at Haverford College in Pennsylvania and at the Minetti Schramm at the University of California, Davis. Barnett's been included in group exhibitions at museums such as the Berkeley Art Museum, the Pitzer College Art Galleries, and MOCAD in Detroit. Sadie Barnett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. Your installation, Dear 1968, the one that's now in San Diego, isn't just about the year, of course, although the, the, the year is a signifier, just a powerful American signifier, right? It's about a specific confluence of events and a specific confluence of events that involved your father, Rodney Barnett, as well as a member of, of his family. I think we've got to start with what that confluence events of events was and, and what is the confluence of events the work addresses? Well, the work uses as source material a 500-page FBI surveillance file amassed on my father during his brief time with the Black Panthers. So he founded the Compton, California chapter of the Panthers in 1968. The document also follows his time working with Angela Davis on her campaign for freedom in the early 70s. And we requested together as a family this file to really see what level of surveillance, what um, infiltration, you know, my dad's involvement with informants, what this really looked like. And we were all pretty surprised to get back this very thorough, very chilling government document. And I knew that it was really my responsibility and my inheritance to figure out how to make this into a work of art to tell both my dad's story and my family's story and to hopefully draw people into the connections that we can still make to these issues today. 
We're going to come back to inheritance in a little bit. But in terms of the specificity, I mean, we're talking that the FBI's surveillance of your father was so complete that there were like verbatim accounts of conversations he had. I mean, we're talking like truly intrusive security state stuff, right? Exactly. They interviewed every employer he's ever had, his coworkers. They went so far as to interview his high school teacher back in Medford, Massachusetts. They interviewed the little old lady next door to where he grew up. There's accounts of informants reporting back what happened at Panther meetings. It's a very invasive document. And it also has this strange quality where my dad is reading these names and remembering, you know, often very fondly, these neighbors and coworkers who, of course, had nothing bad to say about my father. There was no illegal activity that they could find. So the only thing they could go after was his job with the post office. And he was fired from his job. Uh, The reason cited was cohabiting with a woman he wasn't married to. Of course, we know the real reason was because of his political activism. But these are the types of things that we learn through going through the file, which I incorporate into the work in various ways. So you mentioned that your family filed a FOIA to a Freedom of Information Act request to get the file. At at what point after or before seeing it, did you realize that this was going to become something that you would use in your work? So we filed the request in 2011, and it took about four years, actually, of going back and forth with the FBI to receive these documents, which was frustrating and seemed like a long time. But by the time we received the work, it was almost the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers. And I knew that this would be a part of my work. My work has always been a a celebration of my family, of Black families in America, of the survival and poetry and magic that I often see embodied in these families and in these living room situations, these personal moments that are happening around the politics. So I knew that it would make its its way into the work, but I wasn't sure. You know, it's very weighty material. It's political, it's personal. Oftentimes the Black Panthers, I think, can be reduced to this iconic, you know, leather jackets and the afros and sort of people are really into consuming that image, but not necessarily learning more about the actual politics and the history. So it wasn't until the Oakland Museum approached me to participate in their exhibition that was all about the history of the Black Panthers celebrating the 50th anniversary. And I knew that the work would really be contextualized historically and that I felt was a supportive enough environment to debut the work. And after that experience, I had the opportunity to to grow the work into the exhibition that's currently up at MCASD. So I think most American listeners probably know this, but the Panther Party was particularly strong and vibrant and organized in California, particularly in the Bay Area, particularly in Oakland. And, and, And so it was a natural thing for the Oakland Museum to do. And that's to some extent, explains why so many California museums have been interested in investigating that past, including including through your work. The most striking moment in the installation is two photographs of your father that are hung next to each other. I know, I think I know, why you picked two pictures of him in uniform, as it were. But one's a picture of him in his military, U.S. military uniform. He served in, in Vietnam. And another of him is dressed in in his panther duds, as you described earlier. 
Any particular reason why those two pictures? I mean, I get I get why why the two, you know, why his military uniform and why his panther duds, but why that picture of him in his military uniform? Any particular reason? Um, sure. Well, both of these are small Polaroid portraits. First one in the army uniform being 1966, and the second in the diptych, because I really think of it as one work, is from 1968. And I scanned them at a you know really high resolution so that I could blow these small objects up into an almost life-size portrait. And to me, it's really this process of politicization that we see after basically every war in the United States history is that, you know, African-American soldiers come home to a country that they've just risked life and limb, you know, quite literally for, and find that there's still no place for them in this country that they've just been defending. So my father speaks about coming to California after the war. He came to Compton to bury his nephew who didn't survive the Vietnam War. He came to bury his nephew and felt like he was still at war because of the way the police were conducting military-style operations in the Compton neighborhood. And so my father felt that he had to do something. And what he felt was the most progressive, urgent movement was the Black Panthers. And so that's that's how he joined. And to me, if you look you know, into the face of the this man in this photo, you really see this young, innocent face who's about to be sent off. You know, he doesn't even know that he's going to end up in Vietnam and comes back, you know, having witnessed these horrible atrocities, but still has enough hope to, to commit himself to political change. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in the artwork, the 1964 photograph is slightly off center within the frame and your father is slightly off center within the photograph itself. While in the the Panther era photo, he's perfectly centered. Is that a specific aesthetic decision? And if so, why? Well, obviously, I didn't take the photograph since but, but I you was, not, it. <laughs> was not born. Um, yeah, there's there's very few photographs that we have from that time. But I felt that both of these were beautifully composed, beautiful color. The flash in the portrait in the Black Panther uniform just sort of creates this shadow figure that I find really compelling. And if you look closely at the 1966 photograph, you can see a lot of details in his environment. So like the art on the wall or a copy of, a copy of Ebony magazine that's sitting on the table and these sort of, again, living room moments that I was really compelled to. So while you don't have a lot of options when you're working with, you know, the few found objects. His niece took those photographs, my cousin Sharon. And I think, you know, there's probably an element of her as this, uh, you know, youngster looking up to this, you know, hero that's probably similar to the way I look up to my father. So there's lots of other stuff in the installation from from wallpaper that, that you had made to the FBI file. Could you talk through how you thought through aestheticizing all of this material? I mean, you know, you went to CalArts, you, 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 you speak conceptual language, obviously. But did you start in any one place? And how did you move through from there? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I felt like that was really the task you know, presented to me was, how do I reclaim this information? How do I have some authorship over this information while also not getting in the way of the information, letting it speak for itself. So it took the form of a few material 
interventions. So for the piece that's called My Father's FBI File, Project 3, it's just 28 pages um, chosen from the file to point to very particular moments. And each page is edge mounted on a neon pink plexiglass and hangs about an inch off the wall. So you get this sort of queasy, maybe dystopian future glow about the edges. And then the pages, which you know themselves are black and white typed, this very 60s officious looking documents with uh, redactions as well as handwritten margin notes and stamps from FBI agents. So I wanted to add on top of that my own lexicon of redactions and gestures sort of pointing to these unknowable elements and trying to combat a bit of this investigation by saying there's certain things that you just can't know, the FBI can't know, you can't, you know, surveil the magic of these these actions. And so I used spray paint to create some of these gestures, using spray paint both to reference my generation as like this hip hop generation interacting with this 60s aesthetic. And I also felt that using the spray paint, it's it's an evidence of my hand, but it's also translated through the can. So it's a bit less you know, expressive than to say, draw or paint directly on the documents, which felt a little heavy handed. I'm always interested in creating a little bit of distance or removal from my hand, but sort of hiding it or folding it in, in various ways. And the last material on those FBI documents are these rhinestones. They're like a pink, purple, stars, little crowns that you would find at like a craft store. And that was really an attempt to heal some of the pain, some of the trauma that's found in these pages. Of course, it's a necessarily failing attempt because, you know, what can a little rhinestone sticker do? But it sort of points to this sad yet hopeful attempt to put some love onto these very hateful documents. There is a long history of artists uh, using or referring to official documents in art, even if we go back to, you know, Renaissance portraits, you know, you have merchants holding bills of sale or IOUs or whatever. Did you bone up on or think about other ways documents had been used and presented by artists in their work? Or were you just reaching into your own toolkit of, of glitter and glue and stickers? Magic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a great toolkit. I really, I, I did start with reaching in to my own, you know, arsenal of formal practices and, you know, the things that I really value, which are often minimalism, cleanliness of form. But of course, through showing the work, I've, you know, been invited to look at other works or maybe curated next to other works, like, you know, Jenny Holzer, for example. And I'm also really interested in totally different ways of looking at these documents, like in her example, you know, painstakingly recreating them, which is, I think is another, you know, very useful tool that I employed more so in the graphite pencil drawings. So there is one image that appears in this 500 page document, it's a mugshot of my father. And by seeing this image, you know, I was so struck with how a mugshot functions. It instantly 
dehumanizes someone. Like they quite literally become a number. And just thinking of this, you know, mugshot of my father sitting on hundreds of FBI desks across the country, how easy it becomes to think of this person as someone to be eliminated. And I figured that if I were to render this image in hand, you know, perfectly detailed in pencil, perhaps that translation could turn it into a portrait of a freedom fighter rather than a, a mugshot, you know, intent on taking away someone's humanity and taking away someone's story. And uh, another time that I employ this technique is through the drawing of J. Edgar Hoover's signature. He, he signs these documents, very truly yours, J. Edgar Hoover, which was just too ironic and chilling not to bring into the story. So someone actually pointed out to me that that drawing is a forgery in a way of his signature. And of course, Hoover was himself a bit of a forgery in the sense that he was living one life, he was living two lives at once and they, they contradicted with each other. We'll have images of the installation on manpodcast.com. If, if listeners go there, they will see that you've framed the mugshot of your father in the, the same way you have framed the two family snapshots. There's kind of an equivalence that you're offering there. One of the things that struck me about the work and its genesis is that in America, we don't question how wealthy people, typically white wealthy people, inherit privilege and money. It's we, we, we just accept that. And of course, well, maybe not of course, but in the first 50 or 80 years of the American experiment in the 18th and 19th century, white Americans debated this and discussed whether our nation was becoming too aristocratic and too much like Europe that way. And then obviously we stopped debating it. How interested were you in using this work or making a work to make a point about inheritance and legacy and family and certain kinds of aristocracy even and how they are lived in America? Yeah, I think often about the inheritance as this, you know, ephemeral lessons and traditions, but there is a lack there in terms of the substantial you know, organizational or monetary legacies that have really been undone, um, whether you're, you know, by our government, whether you're talking about, you know, Black Wall Street or the Black Panther Party, which was just, you know, dismantled by COINTELPRO, J. Edgar Hoover. And thinking about what those institutions were really trying to build, right? If you look at the 10-point platform of the Black Panther Party, you know, most of the things on that list have to do with family, have to do with education, with housing, with food, with the very basic needs of taking care of one's community and, you know, on a micro level, family. So to me, you know, while the Black Panthers has sort of been painted with this, you know, machismo bravado, if you really look at the politics, most of it is these very loving acts of care, you know, looking at the free breakfast program, which was sort of one of the essential moments of, you know, galvanizing the community, taking care of the community, which was famously described by J. Edgar Hoover as the most dangerous aspect of the Black Panther Party. But thinking about, you know, what it means to put these organizational resources into feeding and educating children, you know, to me, that's a very tender actual type of, of politic. Black people doing what a whites-led government was not. 
Exactly. And, and calling to question, you know, making it very obvious that the government wasn't taking care of all Americans. You know, I think also about this inheritance from this, you know, 60s, early 70s moment with, you know, some criticality and some questions. So if you look at the drawing that reads Dear 1968, Love 1984, it's this, you know, in a way it's maybe a love letter to 1968. It's maybe a a thank you, but it's also leaving space for some of the difficult questions. So there's no actual text in the letter. It's just this salutation and the sign off. But by using this space with all this mark making and drawing labor to kind of meditate on some of the difficult questions, you know, like, what are we supposed to do now? Or why didn't we have a revolution? Why didn't everything change? Why didn't racism go away? You know, uh, what, what should we do now? Why is there no plan? So these are the more difficult uh, aspects of, of the legacy. And of course, some of these things exist beyond language, which is why that drawing doesn't, doesn't begin to try to get into these questions, but just leaves space for them, for them to exist. So the MCA San Diego presentation is not the first presentation of the work. And I think it's changed a little bit from, from place to place. Is that an engagement with or reflection of an awareness of America's present uh, politics, particularly the way Amer- the, the Trump administration has so racialized American politics or re-racialized American politics? Yes, um, the the show has changed a bit, both, you know, because I'm always working and playing in the studio and also because of some things that have developed um, in the last year since this work was first shown. For example, this new category that the FBI has created, or as I like to say, hallucinated, which is this category of black identity extremists. There's been some really great reporting about this, um, like from The Intercept and Democracy Now!, and we basically just see this conflating of black activism with violence again. And so I really encourage people, you know, who look at this work and think, wow, you know, look at this egregious government overreach that was happening. I really encourage them to, you know, hold a mirror up to what's happening today with the FBI and this black identity extremist category or with the ICE agency and really not to, you know, relegate these issues to past tense. You know, it's, it's easy now to look back and see how criminal the Vietnam War was, but we also have to look today at the wars that we're engaged in now. I know this next question gets a little beyond the art, but, but it's probably also there a little bit. So given that white America likes to pretend that racism is in its past and not in its present, it seems kind of pointed that you and your father, who, who must be, what, 74, 75? 73. 73. I'm not good at math. <laughs> um, <laughs> y'all have done at least one event together related to, to this artwork, a, a moderated conversation. First, uh, of course, what, what is that like to have the subject of an artwork there with you on a stage in front of people talking about both his life and your engagement with his past? Uh, yeah, well, it's been a, a real blessing. I feel like often these projects happen, you know, after someone has passed away or when someone discovers an archive of, you know, someone after their time. And I'm so lucky that 
I get to share this work with my family and with my father. We've got to do a lot of interviews together, openings together. You know, my whole family always comes out to the openings. It's really like an activation of the work because, you know, people's, my uncles and my cousins, they're all implicated into this file. So it's, it's really important to me that they're all there. They've always been supportive of my, of my work, but, you know, now that they're in it, it really feels like our work. And my, my father is just a really interesting, interesting guy. And I think for him to be living, you know, in all of the contradictions that any person has, it really can provide a, a more nuanced look at, you know, some of these issues that kind of get flattened out when we think of like these archetypal, you know, personalities. But when you're really looking at one guy, it becomes much more, much more nuanced and specific. And it's also been really fun. <laughs> I'm constantly learning, you know, from my father and from other people's engagement with the work. I feel like it's an ongoing, an ongoing investigation into how much, you know, generosity and rigor can go into future work. And I think I'll be learning from this material for a while. Did Did he know you were making this work while you were working on it? Was there kind of father-daughter engagement about about the thing? Yeah, definitely. So both my mother and my father and I, you know, combed through the pages together, shared what we thought were important moments or, you know, really chilling moments. We We really spent time together, you know, reflecting on what all of this means. And so it's very much, you know, a, a group effort, I would say, to to tell these stories. Of course, you know, when it came to the formal aspect, I think my father thought, you know, how is this possible to turn, you know, this stack of papers into an experience that people can walk into? And then you pointed to your degrees on the wall. <laughs> right. I said, don't <laughs> worry, Pop. I, I got this. I got this. But yeah. Sadie Barnett, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.